Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We are continuing now the fourth in a series of uh, conversations that Francis and I have been having from a book entitled Contemplative Provocations by Father Donald Haggerty. And um, I'll reiterate that Father Haggerty himself acknowledges that much of the material for this a series of reflections, it's ideal for prayer because it really is a series of reflections, are drawn not only from his own personal experience in prayer, though that is clearly true and clearly evident, uh, but drawn largely from the Carmelite saints. And I would say, uh, Francis, most especially Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And oh, by the way, hi, Francis. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm great. <laughs> I'm feeling very blessed. Happy to be here in the studio in the midst of all snow. <laughs> well, and I would say, too, I, I'd mentioned Teresa and, and St. John of the Cross. Of course, we often do when we talk about prayer. Um, but I would not hesitate also to include in that Therese of Lisieux. And in a way that you and I have talked about before, and that is the fact that certain saints affect us not so much by their writing. Maybe many people would agree. I certainly have the opinion. I'm not as affected by what I read of St. Therese's own writings, her individual reflection, story of a soul, although last conversations gets to me. But what really affects me about Therese is her life, her life story. Now, that's certainly true of Teresa and St. John of the mm-hmm. Cross. But Therese, in a special way, and of course you know my affinity to uh, St. Andre Bisset uh, in uh, Montreal, mm-hmm. uh, responsible for, in large measure, the building of the oratory. His life really affects me. And Therese, even though she lived uh, largely this monastic life, um, what people wrote about her and the reflections on her really have a profound impact on me and are reflected, I think, in this book by Father Haggerty. Well, how can they not? She's the daughter of John and Teresa. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's follow her model, if we can, today in our conversation. And um, if uh, I can beg upon you, as I do each week, Francis, to lead us in prayer. Certainly. And, you know, since the title of this program is Provoking Contemplation, the Poor and Contemplation, um, and we're going to start talking um, about love, um, I picked this prayer that I found on marypages.com, marypages.com, called Teach Us to Love. So let us get quiet, and together in union with the Lord, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank Thee for all the love that has been given to us, for the love of family and friends, and above all, for Your love poured out upon us every moment of our lives in steadfast glory. Forgive our unworthiness. Forgive the many times we have disappointed those who love us, have failed them, wearied them, saddened them. Failing them, we have failed you. And hurting them, we have wounded our Savior, who for love's sake died for us. Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. You do not fail those who love you. You do not change nor vary. Teach us your constancy in love, your humility, selflessness, and generosity. Look in pity on our small and tarnished loving. Protect, foster, and strengthen it, that it may be less unworthy to be offered to you and to your children. O light of the world, teach us how to love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, you mentioned, uh, Francis, that uh, uh, the title for this week's conversation is The Poor 
and contemplation. That's not the only topic, but I thought it was a good way to sort of frame this conversation. And um, actually, ideally, it links well with where we have to begin. And I say have to begin because we didn't finish our conversation last week right. on this material. And I look in trepidation at uh, the amount of material that we uh, presume we're going to get through today and wonder whether, in fact, we'll get to the end of it. But um, Father Haggerty's book, like so many great spiritual classics, and I believe this will become a spiritual classic, is rich uh, with material on every single page. It's hard to just skip over some of these reflections. Right, and we want to share the wealth, don't we, Mark? (laughs) Well, so we're going to talk about the poor, but I want to step back uh, just a little bit and talk about the call to prayer and its association with, as is uh, consistently reiterated, the theme of this program, our everyday life. We are all called to a contemplative encounter with the living God, regardless of our circumstances in life. And so we find that balance. And I want to reiterate something here, which will then be reflected in Father Haggerty's next reflection. And that is that St. Teresa, of course, tells us that the only thing that should ever draw us out of prayer is to go and practice the virtue of charity for another person, to do something uh, by form of charity for another person. And this seems to me very consistent with Father Haggerty's reflection uh, found um, in the middle of this uh, particular section, Francis. All right, here's what Father Haggerty shares with us. Should a passion for God subsume all other desires in a life? This would imply that everything we love in life, other than God, somehow competes with God, even steals from God the love that should be all his. This notion is incompatible with the tender affections for particular human lives that was present in the saints. Their passion for God did not make them passionless toward the world they lived in. They had a cleaving attachment to God, but it did not extinguish friendship in their lives. They never became indifferent to human love. Rather, a refinement rooted in supernatural passion affected their love for human persons. Their great passion for God made every human love like the swell of a wave riding upon a powerful ocean undercurrent. He's so poetic sometimes in his yes, uh, that last line. Wow, really does a lovely job. But you know what is Father Haggerty saying here? Very simply. Um, just because we talk about things like detachment and um, asceticism and removing ourselves from the world, he he doesn't want us to set up this um, uh, conflict between our life and our pursuit of holiness, a relationship, and and ultimately, we hope, union with God. In fact, uh, all of the circumstances of our life are enriched by this experience with the living God and become part of that. Now, certainly, things that are distracting to it, uh, too much television, maybe... uh, Uh, certain entertainments or relationships, yeah, those need to be dispensed with. But he's not suggesting that somehow we should dispense with our responsibilities, our call to charity, as as St. Teresa said. Instead, what he's saying is, no, those things will be enriched, they'll be consumed into that experience of God, and therefore we will be better able uh, to demonstrate the love, the charity, the compassion, the kindness, the the, uh, humility in those relationships that becomes an increasing part of our relationship with God. Yes, because some people think that, well, other people are too much of a temptation and, you know, they they think to get away from everybody. But, you know, God can be found in these other people. And we need to see how God is using the people and the circumstances of our life to to weave this tapestry of his hiddenness and his love for us in each moment. 
And then Father Haggerty goes on, uh, consistent with that, how do we incorporate it, as Francis says, into the different elements of our life? Well, he leads to the inevitable question, where do I find the strength to do that? So you're suggesting, Francis and Mark, that now my relationship with my brother who annoys me, <laughs> or that co-worker, or uh, you know, that person in my life who just keeps bothering me, all of a sudden that's going to be made better by virtue of my pursuit of holiness. Well, where is the strength for that coming from? Do I just make this mental decision? Is it an act of will that I do this? Well, Father Haggerty points out, uh, holiness, growth in holiness, is not simply an increase in our willingness to do this. Um, yes, there are works that we can practice, asceticism and prayer and um, dis- dis- fasting uh, and fasting, sacrifice, devotions and so forth, um, that will contribute to that. But ultimately, we have to acknowledge that this is a gift, this grace in this gro- growth in holiness is a gift from God. Um, And it is something that we dispose ourselves to through the practice of these uh, devotions. That's our responsibility, our part. Yeah, to respond uh, favorably to the call. (laughs) Exactly right. And then we will begin to see this change in ourselves. In fact, he frames asceticism. We use this word so often, and some people think of it as, oh, denial and sleeping on a hard floor and cold showers, and it's all the terrible stuff. Well, he frames it somewhat differently. He says, asceticism is no measure of a soul. In other words, if all that it was uh, required of a soul, uh, uh, I'm speaking this now, was to uh, sort of uh, diminish ourselves and practice these very austere uh, lifestyles, Everybody would do that to get right. to heaven, and, right? And, and, of course, that wouldn't increase love, would it? Yeah. <laughs> we have to have purpose, and we have to have meaning. We have to have direction, and, and God is the direction. <laughs> but nonetheless, he goes on to say, people who do acquire a taste for mortification are less likely to halt when difficult interior purifications commence. Yes, that's very good, because, you know, um, if you practice it denying yourself, then when the big moments arrive, and you're not expecting it, and you're not doing it of your own accord... But you're being asked of this through the circumstances of your life, then you're going to have more chance of a success with doing it. Yeah, it's not just that these practices of self-denial, and I'm reading from Father Haggerty's text again, uh, and sacrifice develop a strong will. Again, there are plenty of people in the world with strong wills. It doesn't make them holy. We can't will ourselves to be holy. But these earlier renunciations, he goes on to say, also carve a deeper sincerity into the, de- into the soul, a determination to seek God no matter what the cost. In other words, listener, what happens is as we practice the basics, if you will, sort of the, the scales in music, Francis, mm-hmm. as we continually, repetitiously, and with perseverance, practice those ascetical elements of life, we actually imbue the soul with strength and willingness and determination because inevitably there will be greater challenges that we neither dictate nor um, anticipate, uh, nor will we be able to control the outcome of, but we will be able to control how we respond to them. And so if we have built a spiritual muscle through some of these earlier acts, again, not a will, but a spiritual muscle, we will bear up better under these spiritual challenges. You know, there's actually four benefits that he lists about this renunciation. And one, which you said, um, developing a deeper sincerity in the soul. And you also said determination. Um, and that's a determination to seek God, to please God. Oh, Therese was very good at pleasing God. <laughs> and what was her statement about determination? Yeah, uh, I Whoa. must have a determined Ter- determination. That's Teresa of Avila. Right, Teresa of yeah, Avila. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of Therese when I think of uh, one who was pleasing God because, uh, I mean, she was all the time using that word, pleasing God. Uh, the third one is accustom a soul to God's hidden presence, encouraging ever effort, 
every effort of generosity. And then the fourth, allow a soul to trust God even in weariness and fatigue. So practicing this has great benefits for our spiritual life. It's also important to note that we're not necessarily uh, being asked to give everything up that we find pleasure in in our life. Remember what we said a moment ago. It's perfecting those desires and those pleasures that we have. We are being asked, uh, in some cases, to leave certain things behind for the greater gift that God is wanting to give us. Not so perfect for this Lenten season, don't you think? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. It's also important to note that God seldom asks a sacrifice of us that is worthy of praise from our brothers and sisters. In Mm -hmm. other words, he doesn't say, oh, why don't you go make that very public uh, you know, act, and therefore you will be uh, uh, no, uh, noticed for doing so. Yeah, and the hidden ones are the better ones. Yeah, that's what he often asks for, the simple sacrifice, the one for which there will not be recognition, and the one that we will struggle trying to resolve in our own mind. What was the value of what I just did? Well, the value, of course, is the diminishment of our own will. We'll be willing sometimes uh, to give up our large home, uh, but perhaps not our position of importance on the parish council. And I think everybody who's listening to us knows what I mean. We've all had these these struggles, Francis. And of course, if we don't exercise this mortification, then we will uh, have a strain of spiritual covetousness, right? We want to covet things. And this is what Father Haggerty says about this coveting. This is a consequence of failing to temper tendencies toward pleasure for its own sake. The most immediate effect is a weaker quality of I. Now, here's an important line. Coveting is pernicious to our spiritual vision. It makes our eyes impure, narrowing them in desire, making them filter many observations of the day through a lens of inner need. Coveting is... Is first in the eyes, eyes hungry for satisfaction before they find anything to pursue. Without learning to deny ourselves, coveting will be last in our eyes as well. Eyes overcome by frustration because we have not learned to seek blindly after God. So here we need to have that single eye that a blessed Elizabeth the Trinity always talks about. And, you know, Francis points out in that reflection, it's the little things that will trip us up. Mm-hmm. It's that tiny little attachment. You know, somebody used the analogy one time, well, I don't mind giving away the book that somebody wants to borrow that I don't expect getting back because this person may have a history of not returning things that we've loaned them, but I'm certainly not giving them my pen. Right. <laughs> I knew that's where you were going to go with that because a lot of people... From you, actually. <laughs> a lot of people can be very possessive of those people. Well, this means, Father Haggerty says, to expect small testings in which our own preferences must be denied. And, of course, our model for this, Francis, undoubtedly, is St. Therese of Lisieux. She is the model. She's the saint, I would say, of little things, right? I was just going to put that in my notes. You stole my line. <laughs> the saint of the little things. <laughs> the saint who, said, who, who embodied little things mean a lot. And, you know, there's another point that Father Haggerty says here. The hope of every sacrifice of comfort can be that in deprivation and poverty, we may come to know the God who embraces beggars and lepers with a divine kiss. So that's something to really ponder. Mm. Yeah, we're going to talk more about uh, this concept of beggars when we get to the uh, chapter, the section in the book on poor. 
the poor and our response to the poor and poverty. It goes so well, not just with Lent, as Francis said, but also with the message of the Holy Father on mercy that mm-hmm. we'll be talking about over the next many weeks uh, as we continue in our Lenten journey. But we're going to move into the next section of the book here, linking this uh, idea about the little sacrifices to suffering and trial. And this is sort of uh, moving us up a notch, if you will, and acknowledging, as uh, Father Haggerty does so well, as all the great saints, if we are willing to listen, uh, will tell us that at some point in our spiritual journey, there will be great trials. And I don't think we should shy away from that fact, Francis. It's explicit in the uh, writings of Father Haggerty and the Carmelite saints in those who um, have ascended the Mount of Carmel and uh, Calvary, we, we might identify it. Um, we should not shy away from the acknowledgement that there are great trials on this journey. In fact, John of the Cross will often tell us that God prostrates souls in a preliminary trial when he intends to draw closer in love. I'll never forget the first time I met this one lady in church. I had gone through some trial. I don't even remember what it was. It was so long ago. But she said, God must really love you to give you that trial. And, you know, I never heard of that at that time. And so I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) So here's the answer. God was drawing me closer into his divine life and participating in his passion, which helps us to focus on what's most important, which is love. And we need to be open to this, people. I I, I can't reiterate this enough. It isn't something that we ought to be afraid of. We shouldn't be struggling. We shouldn't be resisting it. It is a necessary uh, aspect of our spiritual journey, but it requires on our part, as we've been discussing now for some time, um, the practice of prayer, the practice of asceticism, a willingness to allow God to do this work. Listen, I'll be very honest at the same time. If we don't want this work done in us, God will not do it. Right. He knows that to do so would break us. If we don't have the, the spiritual muscle, again, not willpower, but the spiritual muscle to undergird the trials that he uh, desires to bring us through, he will not do it. If our heart is not there, he will not do it. I, I, I remember a great analogy about... Um, a high jumper in the Olympics, might have been uh, Dwight Stone, if I'm not mistaken, who would say that uh, you need to throw your heart over the bar first and the body will follow. Oh, interesting. And that's true in the spiritual journey. We need to throw our heart into it and then the body will follow. Father Haggerty does have, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this section, a very direct uh, sentence here in one of his reflections that sort of lays the groundwork for all that's about to uh, be discussed. And it, it says this, It may be a hard truth, he says, to accept that God's greatest love is proven by the prevalence of trials we could not foresee and by their lingering despite every plea for their removal. It is a rare soul that learns to take no surprise at this. Right. And, you know, suffering is so often an invitation of the Lord to come closer and that he has a lesson to teach us that is going to make us a better person, that will draw us out in a way um, that only he knows will be best for us and those around us. Well, we've gone through almost 140 pages of uh, Father Haggerty's book to, quite frankly, end up about where we began, Francis, and that <laughs> is, this is a hard journey. We yep. shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, shy away from that fact, and of course, you and I in our conversations never have. Um, the truth of the matter is, it may be an explanation as to why there are so few saints running around. <clears throat> because, because like Teresa says, um, or John says this, that the reason why there aren't more that are on this journey at the high ends of this pro- progress in prayer is because too few souls have the love to do it. Yeah, uh, but, but I want to caution even us, and perhaps even Father Haggerty in this point, 
Um, we must remember, and he, he will reflect on this later, so I'm certainly not challenging anything that he's written. Um, we don't know how many saints there are running around in That's, our world, do we? We don't. We because don't. this work that is being done is so often, I love uh, the next to last chapter in this book, Francis, that we'll get to eventually, um, where he talks about the... Um, the demeanor, the uh, characteristics of people in the contemplative experience. Right. And so much of this work, listeners, you must remember, is being done in the interior of the soul. We don't know who these saints are. Well, there just may be like, many more of them. Just like with St. Therese of Lisieux, her, some of her sisters in the convent who lived with her had no idea what a genius of a saint she was because they did not know her interior life. And even after she passed away, you're referring to the fact that um, when people started talking about, well, gee, what a, you know, what a great soul, people were I lived with her for 10 years. I what, what didn't see anything about? about her that was yeah. special. She wasn't a bad person, but, you know, we didn't see anything special. And then they began to uncover her writings and other uh, stories began to uh, come out about her. So I, I caution uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, yes, we don't see many saints in the world, and it may well be to our um, detriment that there may not be many willing to make this journey of love that Francis refers to. But at the same time, we don't really know. This work is an interior work. And I would tell you that if we did acknowledge the saints uh, on a broad scale, on a continual basis, certainly people like uh, John Paul II, uh, John XXIII, Teresa of Calcutta, uh, these are examples that we uh, are gifted uh, from God uh, as witnesses. But if we saw them all, um, I, I think we'd be taken aback. I think so many of them really are hidden. But with that said, there's another caution uh, to address regarding our response to suffering and trials. So many who enter this year's pursuit of God uh, can come to accept this sort of inevitability of suffering, and they desperately desire a way to adapt or to make it more comfortable. Uh, and they choose what is philosophically a discipline, a school of discipline called Stoicism. Okay, explain that. Yeah, Stoicism is basically an abandonment, uh, but not in a good way. Um, the um, uh, idea, of course, is that I'm just giving myself over. I'll accept everything. This is actually somewhat akin, though the uh, philosophical definition is a little bit different, uh, of what Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection was somewhat accused of. That was the quietist movement, mm -hmm. um, and, and he and others were lumped into that when they suggested that they just didn't care. They could be cast into hell, and they wouldn't care. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. We're not talking about indifference. We are talking about a holy indifference. Therese of Lisieux uh, was acknowledged as one who had adopted holy indifference. It isn't that she didn't care what happened to her. She did, but only to the extent that whatever happened to her, she could turn into love for the Lord. And because she knew whatever was coming was coming from the hand of the Lord specifically for her. Right. So be careful about that, listeners. We don't want to adopt a, 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 a mindset of stoicism that makes us indifferent. We want to be wholly indifferent, meaning we want everything that happens to us. We don't care what it is as long as it leads us to love, as long as it, yeah. is, it gives us an opportunity to respond in love. And, of course, everything in our life does. And, and so the stoicism is it's sort of like if we feel less, then we foolishly think that we are surrendering more, where, you know, surrender is not just about feeling less. <laughs> of course, we know that. At, at the same time, we want to be careful not to say, when I made reference earlier to the inevitability of suffering, we don't want to say, well, of course I'm suffering. I'm such a bad person. This is God's way of getting even with me, or this is God's way of balancing the scales. That's not what we're talking about. Right. God does not punish us. He doesn't look for ways to slap our wrist every time we turn around. And so many souls that I've done some work with, you know, struggle with this 
perception somehow, I've struggled with it myself, that somehow the bad things that happen in our life, well, that's God doing his work in me. No, every wound, every injury, every pain, everything that we suffer is God's effort, if we stay in concert with him through prayer, is God's effort to heal the greatest wound that we have, and that is the absence of love in our heart. Right. Every physical wound, every psychological trauma that we've ever experienced is a means, is a venue for the Lord to use the stigmata in our life, Francis, yes. to use your analogy yesterday, the stigmata in our life as the entry point to create a deeper love within and us. And like you have said before, Mark, wherever there is a wound, that is a point where either evil can come in or God can come in. But but in every wound, God is waiting to bring the healing. He's waiting to blossom forth the perfume of a rose blooming into virtue and greatness. Well, we've got to take a break as much as I hate to do it because <laughs> we're on a roll. Conversation, but um, we're just going to break for a short uh, um, time and then we will be right back to you. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations, a program on Carmelite spirituality on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back. there be light, let there be light again For into the dark the sun is sent and We will see and we will see once more For unto us the light is born Let there be peace this night 
Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations, a program on Carmelite spirituality on Radio Maria, Christian voice in your home. Francis and I are continuing the discussion on a book entitled Contemplative Provocations by Father Donald Haggerty, a book rich in Carmelite spirituality and Carmelite teaching in prayer. I, I caution, uh, to be honest, uh, I think, Francis, we've advocated uh, people perhaps uh, seeking out this book and reading it, buying it if they uh, have the means. Uh, but, but I would say this is a book on contemplation. This is not about vocal prayer. It's not an entry-level book into prayer. Um, it's not even about meditation. It's about contemplation, which is, of course, one of the higher forms, one of the higher states of prayer. Um, and I don't recall that Father Haggerty actually cautioned uh, anywhere in the beginning of the text uh, that fact. It wouldn't be my first suggestion to somebody who may be no uh, beginning prayer yeah. <laughs> or early in their prayer life. If you've only been praying for, you know, seriously now for some um, limited period of time, this actually wouldn't be the book that I would suggest to you. Well, and I do want to mention that on both the Radio Maria website under Carmelite Conversations and also on CarmeliteConversations.com, we have listed resources, so if you want all the information for this book and others that we have mentioned in passing yeah. on our conversations, you can find that under um, resources. Well, going back to the conversation regarding uh, our willingness to accept trials, again, we caution uh, we should not do this in the form of stoicism, which says, oh, I just don't care what happens to me, I accept everything. Uh, nor should we berate ourselves and saying, well, I'm, I'm suffering because I deserve it. I, I have done these terrible things in my life, and now uh, God's punishing me, and the, the, the scorecard's going to get bounced out. That's not what the spiritual journey is about. In fact, that's a, that's a heretical statement with regard to spirituality. It's not at all what it's about. The only thing God is trying to heal us of is our absence of love, the perfection of love within the human heart. That's what the whole spiritual journey is about. Francis reminds us of this uh, quite consistently, um, that this is about love. It is fundamentally about growing in love, holiness, spirituality, prayer, all this. You can, you can uh, write uh, tomes of theological texts. At the end of the day, it's going to boil down to one statement. This is about love. Yeah, like John of the Cross says, at the end of life, you'll be judged on love on and love, love alone. alone. Exactly. God is love, and we are trying to conform ourselves to the image of the only word he ever spoke, which is his Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he was brought to us to reconcile us to the Father, certainly. But what is the transformation? What is the journey? It is a journey to a deepening, uh, deepening and purification uh, of our love, and that's what it's all about. And, of course, Mark, we have to think about, you know, some trials may be with us for all of our life, crosses that um, we can't resolve, um, but, you know, it reminds me of St. Paul and the wound in his side. And he prayed for that to be taken away. And the Lord says, um, what did the Lord say? Uh, my grace is sufficient. Yes, that's the word. <laughs> I was trying to remember what it was. I yeah. My grace is sufficient. So um, whether it's a lifetime trial or just a, a momentary or short or long, whatever, um, all of it is filled with God's love. Uh, but we have to look for that. And sometimes we get so centered on self rather than looking on, you know, for God's hand in it um, that we lose our perspective. In searching for God, it doesn't necessarily we're going to know the answer because it's a mystery. Uh, and, and many times we only have an inkling of what's happening. But the point is that um, in faith, we know that all that happens to us comes from his loving hand. So how should it change our prayer? We certainly have the right and the, the uh, promise from God 
that we should ask him for the things that we need. And we can ask for the removal of the thorns in our side. We can say, Lord, you know, please take away that, that physical ailment that I have. Take away the psychological trauma that I have, whatever it might be for us. But if at the end of the day and after many, many hours of prayer over that particular topic, um, the Lord doesn't seem to be inclined to remove it, then we need to change our prayer. And I'll tell you where it needs to go. We need to ask God for the grace to bear the cross that he's given us. Because that right. cross, as Francis said, a woman related to her, God must love you very much that he's given you that cross. Right. And actually, it ends up playing out as humility that, you know, we don't know what's best for us, but God does. And maybe this wound or thorn in our side is going to keep us from developing to a prideful person and falling away from the Lord. But but one of the best responses is the humility and gratitude. Because you remember when we did um, Father Louis Martinez and the hidden God, yep. um, he's talking about the <clears throat> stages of surrender. And it's, you know, like recognize it, you know, accept it and then embrace it and then offer it back. And and embracing it, that's the gratitude because the humility and the gratitude are our best response in our prayer. So, but... Take heart. There's consolation in all of this. Um, yeah, and, and what Francis has just given us, by the way, very encouraging. We are not just left to our own devices and told, no, just sit there and wait, just suffer. You just can't do anything about it. She's given us the methodology from, from uh, Father Martinez, Archbishop Martinez. Um, no, we do have something we can do about it. Ultimately, we do have to embrace it, but then we can offer it back as a sacrifice to our Lord. It becomes a means of expressing our love. And so we are not... Uh, uh, sort of in this uh, uh, state where um, you know th- there's nothing that we uh, can do to respond. It's not it's not futile. In other words, uh, Paul says this. You know I, what what uh, crosses we have to bear. It's not for futility's sake. Uh, we do have a means that we can respond, and what we do is we respond in love. And remember that we grow through that difficulty, through that trial. Pray for its removal, but ultimately ask for the grace to bear it up and to bear it in love. Yeah, bear bear strength. Um, you know, suffering in itself carries within it a longing for God, a longing for that relief, a longing for God to come and help us. And Father Haggerty says, God places us in trial only to expose his love for us. You know, it is the mystery, but when we thank God and we trust him, he seems closer to us because suffering offered is a means of union with Christ on the cross. And so um, as we ponder this, you know, there is much mystery, but I think the more practice we get at it, the more we start to see the reality of how it truly plays out. And what can we do? We said a moment ago, offering it, Francis, reiterating now, offering it back. What ultimately is our response? Father Haggerty said this actually in an earlier chapter, and we know this as Carmelites, Francis. Go before the Eucharist. Go before the tabernacle and sit there. And don't, don't analyze. Don't, don't berate yourself, but don't analyze. Why is God doing this? What's the answer? We can How spend can hours doing that. <laughs> yeah, and then all, all it does is add to the difficulty of it. Just sit before the Eucharist. If you're doing that, if you're saying, God, I give this back to you, I give it over to you, I accept your will, you will find peace and consolation in that. In fact, I want to read the very last reflection that Father has in this particular chapter um, of the book because it does provide us that consolation that I suspect, Francis, at this point many of our listeners are probably looking for. He says, It is unfortunate if after many signs of solicitude on God's part, we allow ourselves to be intimidated by the hypothetical thought of trials yet to come. Admittedly, we can tire of divine testings. He's acknowledging there are going to be times that we tire of it. He says, We can put God on notice that we have had enough 
But perhaps we would forfeit a great attraction for God that was growing within our soul. We forget that he may find us more appealing in our poor trials than at any other hour. And that reminds me of St. Therese when she says, It's true, I suffer a great deal, but do I suffer well? (laughs) Well, this reference to the poor, of course, our own state of poverty, leads us directly into the next section of the book, Uh, entitled simply, The Poor. And this is my favorite chapter in the whole book because I think this is some of the best teaching on understanding God's hiddenness in the poor that I've ever read. I really like it. Yeah, and I will say, too, that... as I did a mo- or early in the program, I think it's very consistent with what we're hearing from the Holy Father right now about our preferential option for the poor, our right. need to respond to the poor. Why? Because it's the right thing to do? No. Because it's a good thing to do? No. Because it'll make us feel good? No. And of course, but all of those are yes, but yeah, there's a deeper, deeper. Right. <laughs> the ultimate reason is because Christ is resident within the poor. And if we right. want to respond and serve Christ, then we find him in the poorest of the poor. Well, I put as a subtitle to this, Francis, I hope you accept it, that here we truly see the fulfillment of the Carmelite call to apostolic contemplation. Right. I think this is where sort of the rubber meets the road and what we heard from St. Teresa of Avila a little bit earlier about the need to come out of our prayer for acts of charity. They, in and of themselves, are a prayer. And also she always said, you know, the result of prayer is good works. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. The, the central theme of this section of Father Haggerty's book is really uh, the same one we hear now from the Holy Father, as I said. A Christ is found in the poor. We might even say he's more clearly found in the poor in our society. We're reminded that Christ entered the world as a poor carpenter. He was born into those humble surroundings, and he died as nothing other than a poor victim. In fact, it's very consistent with the the reference uh, to Scripture, as we want continuously to do, uh, to go back to Scripture. Francis, would you mind reminding us where we find this? Oh, this is Matthew 25, 40. Whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. So this verse really describes the reality of Christ in the poor, mainly for two reasons that that we want to list here. One, because they represent the image of the man of sorrows that we read about in Isaiah. And then, you know, we know Christ was poor, his family's poor. Like you said, they lived and died as poor people. And this poverty, as Father Haggerty describes it, has nothing of majesty or prestige about it. How is it that a king, though, should come to us as a pauper? Second point here is this very fact of Christ's apparent contradiction of poverty versus kingship. And this requires faith on our part to accept. We're invited to see Christ to witness his woundedness and brokenness in the very abject poverty we can so easily find anywhere in the world. As, as we find in Mark chapter 14, 7, or Mark, yes, Mark chapter 14, mm-hmm. 7, I believe. The poor you will always have with you. Okay, remember, the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And Father Haggerty goes into that verse in a very special way. Yeah, he's, he offers up, this was, I agree with you, Francis, a, a very profound insight, at least for me, I'm, I'm sure. It was for um, me, too. For, for Father Haggerty, it may have seemed commonplace, but um, uh, for me, it was actually uh, very striking. He draws this duality in Christ. He says there is, of course, a, a, a dual meaning. Christ is telling his followers, I'm here, 
I am not always going to be with you. Of course, this was uh, his last uh, exhortation to his apostles. That's what we're referring to. Probably Holy Thursday, he thought. Exactly. And and remember, this story from Scripture um, is where the woman had just poured alabaster on his head, what what reference Francis just read from. Uh, The alabaster oil that had been used to anoint his head, um, and there had been some negative reaction on the part of the apostles to that act. And we know this, of course, was preparation. We now know it was preparation for his crucifixion and burial. Uh, but there's another far more significant meaning in this uh, for those of us who are here today, those who weren't there when Christ uttered these words, uh, what, what he said so clearly that I, uh, uh, or, or you will always uh, have the poor, but you will not always have me. The poor, then, now represent Christ. This is the obvious conclusion. I am here with you now. You will always have the poor. Once Christ is gone, in effect, what he was saying is, you will find me hidden in In the the poor. poor. Yes, that was amazing. I just love that analogy. And he goes on to explain this by suggesting that Christ intentionally kept himself hidden in the guise of the poor today in our lives as in his day in much the same way that he hides himself in the simple reality of the Eucharistic bread and wine. And of course, they're not saying that those are the same thing, but that Christ has chosen to hide himself in both of these realities that are readily present in the world around us. So, yes, both in disguise, in appearance, hiding the divine reality of Christ's presence. And again, going back to Matthew 25, I want to pick up on that verse that we read just a little bit earlier. We're reminded in Matthew 25, 35, where Christ said, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Well, who is he referring to there other than those who thirst? And of course, we remember his word spoken from the cross. What did he say on the cross? I thirst. I thirst. John nineteen twenty eight. I love it when we get to back up. Uh, all of this with scripture, yeah, me too. Francis, you know, it, it, it helps. I mean, we as Carmelites, I think, and we get this from John of the Cross, so well grounded in scripture. Right. You must be able to build your story in scripture. And of course, uh, Father Haggerty does a marvelous job, which to me uh, associates him more closely with Carmelites than perhaps <laughs> anything else he's doing. Uh, but, but here Christ is saying, I thirst. He's clearly associating himself with the poor who thirst, who desire that we might provide them something to drink. And this thirsting, Mark, also goes beyond what looks like poor as far as outside materialistic kind of poverty. There are also the poor that are searching for love that are in the desert of affluence. Absolutely. And I remember Mother Teresa of Calcutta coming to America and seeing the poverty, not speaking about slum areas, but the poverty of our spirituality, the poverty of our, our lack of love. Yeah, in fact, uh, Father Haggerty picks up on that, I think, very well in this one last sentence of one of the reflections. He says, For those who love him in the poor, his power to draw love in an appearance of powerless need is real and increasingly affecting. And that reminds me of Pope Francis right now. Exactly. And what, what, what both our Holy Father and, and Father Haggerty in this particular section are saying is, we have a sense of compassion when we see certainly the poor on our streets here in America or in, in, in other countries. We have a sense of compassion, a response. It deepens as we, we further understand the nature of their poverty and the depth of their poverty. But in exactly the same way, as we grow in relationship to Jesus Christ, as we become more familiar, more grounded in the eternal realities that he introduces us to, we see the poverty not so hidden in the lives of the affluent. We right. see the, the confusion 
uh, of our age. We see the misdirection. We see the loss. The disorientation. Yeah, the pursuit of material things, the pursuit of experiences. Utilitarianism, relativism. All of that (laughs) is in and of itself a high degree of poverty. In fact, in many ways, um, we might argue that those, uh, as uh, Teresa of Calcutta said, uh, are more lost, more poor, Uh, more impoverished because their soul is impoverished. And Christ is hidden in the physical poor, those who we spoke about initially. But we can also find him resident here in the confusion of those who are seeking their fulfillment in the things that this world provides, which we know will never fulfill any of us. Well, we mentioned earlier, Mark, that there were two reasons for Christ's apparent desire to hide himself in the poor. They best represent the image we are left of the suffering servant, but also the fact that such an image requires faith. Then there is another aspect of this faith element, however, that is just the simple way in which our acceptance of Christ found in the poor allows us to grow in love. And there is this reflection that Father Haggerty offers that touches that point most specifically. Yeah, it was, um, I, I made reference to it a little bit earlier, but he does this much better than I did. Let me read this. Those like the sisters of Mother Teresa, who touch closely the sufferings of the poor, comment at times how little a bodily sense of aversion intrudes when a real hunger for God accompanies this work. Noxious smells, disfigurement, the horrors of disease do not get in the way. They do not repel uh, and intimidate in an aggressive manner. Instead, a kind of rapt attention can be turned toward the misery of another human being. A deeper level of soul takes up the task of washing filthy dress-infested wounds, feeding a mad, twisted face. This is clearly a blessing, not a momentary reprieve that uh, to this natural repugnance or a disappearance, uh, and the senses perceive it differently. But perhaps it becomes, for some souls, a lasting grace of self-forgetfulness. you got to re- repeat that line. This is clearly a blessing, not a momentary reprieve that natural repugnance disappears and the senses perceive it differently, but perhaps it becomes, for some souls, a lasting grace of self-forgetfulness. Yes. Leaving God free on certain days to hover with his presence strangely near and watching. Of course, this is just what Francis said earlier. It's that self-forgetfulness. We get beyond the repugnances of the impoverished, of the, um, you know, we don't need to reiterate it, but that element of our society who really struggles on the margins. In fact, I read just this morning in my reflection in the Magnificat, um, one of um, uh, Mother Teresa's own uh, postulants who had gone out in the early stages of her uh, participation in the order and came home at the end of the day talking about the joy she experienced in touching and serving Christ that day. And what she was referring to was the three hours that she had spent uh, in, in the um, uh, service of a man whose body was literally infested by worms. I mean, the man was dying. Um, he was uh, terribly wounded. He was found on the street. And she cared for him. And she said the only thing she could say was how much joy she experienced in being able to touch the body of Christ that day and to be affected by that. Do you see, listeners, what we're talking about when we say that the very experience of encountering Christ in the poor changes us, it transforms us, it deepens us in love. We go beyond ourselves. We go beyond the repugnances that so often limit our response, our compassionate response. And we are given a grace to be able to move deeper into an encounter with Christ in this state of poverty. 
And, and this this reminds me of nurses, Mark, because um, so many nurses are very compassionate, and you know, of course, they're having to deal with cleaning things, and they have a lot of repugnance in their jobs, and yet some of them have gone past it because they are serving the needy. They are loving Christ in those who are in need of care. And it's so beautiful to see when anybody in that capacity is serving Christ in this way, whereas others you will will see, you know, they're doing it begrudgingly and, you know, they're trying to get out of doing that work. But but those with a true love, with a true compassionate heart, which I've seen many, um, really show this uh, to a, a very high degree of getting past self and focused on the other to help the other in love. Well, you know, he uses a wonderful analogy here, and we both have sort of an artistic event, Francis, so I thought perhaps you would appreciate this as well. But he uses an analogy of the artist, and he says um, that, that in a sense, the artist, and the artist, of course, is the compassionate soul that I just referred to, perhaps Mother Teresa's postulate, who can see things in the work of art that other people can't see. In other words, a painter can look at another painter's work and see things in that work that the average person would not see. Why? Because they've spent hours with a a brush in their hand trying to duplicate the strokes or trying to perfect their stroke, uh, painting stroke, that is. And they can see certain things that the artist was able to accomplish that others probably wouldn't see. What do I mean? Again, analogous to the postulant. They look into the eyes of the poor. And they see because they've been seeking Christ. They've been making those tiny brushstrokes every day. They've been seeking Christ. They've been seeking the face of Christ, perhaps the sacred heart of Christ. And they see him reflected in the poor in a way that the rest of us probably, if we weren't actively seeking, could never see. I think the analogy carries over to musicians as well, Francis. Oh, yeah. There's nu- there's nuances, uh, dynamics, rhythmic complexities, harmonic complexities. And, and, of course, that goes with anything. I remember how boring I thought golf was the first time I played golf, you know. Until you get out there and you try it, then you don't, you realize all the little finer details that are involved with this sport. And then it be- became to be much more interesting. So, um, But, you know, Mark, uh, here we are. We're already uh, near the end of our hour, and I know you've got a very special pilgrimage coming up, and I don't want us to close without you bringing that to everybody's attention. Well, I do. We mentioned it last week. We'll continue to talk about it. It's a pilgrimage in the latter part of September, early October, to the province of Quebec in Canada, uh, a province rich in Catholic culture and French culture, a um, lot of history uh, that we certainly will be exposed to on this trip. It leaves on the 29th of September from wherever you happen to be in the country, by the way. It's not limited in, in location. We'll fly to Montreal. We'll spend three days in Montreal visiting places like St. Joseph's Oratory, uh, Notre Dame, a famous cathedral in Montreal. Uh, we'll b- visit the shrine of uh, Tecuitha, St. Tecuitha, uh, just south of Montreal. And then we'll proceed on to Quebec City, where we'll spend three days visiting another cathedral named Notre Dame. On October 1, actually, when we arrive in Quebec City, we'll be visiting the shrine to St. Therese of Lisieux. Of course, October 1 is her feast day. Uh, It's a very simple shrine, and of course, I think that's uh, most representative of St. Therese. And we'll finish, actually, on the last day, which is um, the 3rd of October in Quebec City. We'll be going to St. Anne de Beaupre, a wonderful cathedral just outside of Quebec City, and then returning on the 4th of October, which is St. Francis of Assisi's feast day. Uh, So a wonderful opportunity for spiritual reflection. It really has a Carmelite uh, theme to it. 
And if you would like more information, you can go to mine and Francis's website, CarmeliteConversations.com, and you'll find a link in the upper middle portion of the page. It'll give you all the details. Uh, and as I say, nobody will contact you. You'll have to contact them. Uh, but I do invite you to join us for this. It will be, a, I think, a wonderful a trip and a beautiful time, by the way, to be in Canada is, is October. And I know Mark wasn't going to say this, but I'll say it. Mark is going to be giving a couple of conferences during that pilgrimage. So, um, and it will have the Carmelite spirituality all in, infused in it. So I know you all will enjoy that very much. So check out your calendars, check out the website, and maybe you could be a part of that wonderful pilgrimage. You know, Father, uh, or Pope Francis has invited all of us to take a pilgrimage in this year of um, mercy. So uh, ponder that as a possibility in your life. So we are here at the end, and I have a closing prayer. This is um, words from St. Teresa of Avila, and the the final few lines are from um, Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene. I found this in his book, Divine Intimacy, one of my favorite. So let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O my Jesus, how great is the love that thou hast for the children of men. The greatest service that we can render thee is to leave thee for love of them and for their advantage. By doing this, we possess thee the more completely. For although the will has less satisfaction in the enjoyment of thee, the soul is glad that thou art pleased and sees that while we live in this mortal life, Earthly joys are unsure, even though they seem to be bestowed by thee, unless they are accompanied by the love of our neighbor. He who loves not his neighbor loves not thee, my Lord. For in all the blood thou didst shed, we see the exceeding great love which thou bearest for the children of Adam. O Jesus, grant that like you we may live in continual union with God And at the same time, give ourselves to our neighbor. May we lead a life of continual recollection, prayer, and contemplation, yet a life wholly devoted to the service of others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, again, a reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations, a program on Carmelite spirituality on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.